0: Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us that you would send your son to such unworthy creatures. We did not deserve it in any way, but yet you and your infinite sovereign wisdom planned our salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. And we stand in awe of that. And all through the Old Testament, you began to give us pictures of that. You began to share types with us, Everything was progressively working towards the cross. And as we study our Old Testament, particularly in Exodus tonight, we see your hand in this. Whether it is unleavened bread or the Passover or blood on the doorpost, all of these are pointing to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. And his blood would wash back over the earliest saints all the way to the last one that will ever receive your grace on this earth. And so, Lord, we... Uh, count it a great pleasure to pray and think and read and meditate on this week. Without it, we wouldn't have no salvation. We would perish and be judged eternally. So we thank you for this week, and we thank you for the Old Testament that points us to the beautiful finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. open our minds and our hearts to the truth of God's word today. Encourage us as we study together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Entitled the sermon "God's Promises: An Aroma of Life or Death," and really, when we study God's promises, there are those of us and many of us down through the generations uh, in the history of Christendom uh, who love the promises of God. And to us, they're life—they're reminder of why we worship and why we get up in the morning—and and causes us great thanksgiving and gratitude when we think of the great promises of God. But not to everybody. In fact, I would say most of the world, the promises of God, have an aroma of death to them. They do not want to bend the knee to them. And for us as Christians, we often experience some of this backlash to the promises of God. I would say this, Christians who lovingly don't compromise, and I use that word carefully, we lovingly don't compromise, meaning we're not Legalistic and hardcore on stuff, but, but we lovingly don't compromise. We will never lack enemies. When we walk with the Lord and we don't compromise and we do what God says, there will always be enemies. There's enemies of the cross. There's enemies of God. Pharaoh was a great enemy of God. In fact, he, he did everything he could to depose God. He had no idea who he was going up against but we see it over and over him trying to manipulate God trying to beat him in some way and yet he couldn't even the nation of Egypt as we'll see they wanted rid of the nation of, of Israel they wanted it rid of their God and, and in fact they drove them out and we see that in our lives if we have people in our lives that we have tried to share the gospel with if we've live the life consistently in front of them often they get very upset with us they don't care for it and so we see these principles in our text tonight that God has given his promises and to some it's a beautiful thing it's a release of slavery um, it's freedom to others that's uh, a it's an aroma of death and I think we'll see that as we look at some of this types and pictures of things that are are to come, even as Christians in the New Testament. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 12. We'll start in verse 14. We're going to move quite rapidly, a little slower at the beginning and a little faster as we go along as we try to get through the rest of this book. Um, We're going to deal with the Passover, the actual Passover and The death angel, the destroyer, the Bible calls him, is going to come in. We're also going to deal with unleavened bread and, and make application to our own lives through these things as well. So let's look at several points tonight. Number one, sin will make you not desire the bread of life. Sin will make you not desire the bread of life. Well, there's no indication of a break in the original divine instructions as we study this text. But, a, but there's a new section starting in verse 14 that undoubtedly begins with a connection to a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Israel's departure from Egypt, they only had unleavened bread when they left. They were to carry no provisions except this unleavened bread. This was partly because of the abrupt exit And yet there are strong spiritual significance to what God asked them to do with this unleavened bread. But both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are often seen as one celebration as the nation went on to remember these things throughout the Old Testament and into the New. Um, Either name often was used to celebrate this great act of God. Sometimes you will see it as the Uh, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's talking about Passover in there, or they may be talking about the Passover and they include the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there's a real connection there. But we made it through verses 1-13 through as we really looked at the Passover last week. Um, But now let's look at verse 14 and, and follow along in your Bibles. I trust you have them there. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Well, the word memorial there is a key word. It's a reference to the act of remembrance. God is big on the, what I call a doctrine of remembrance. We do it when we ser- uh, celebrate the Lord's table regularly here. It's a doctrine of remembrance. He wants us to remember the things he has done. And he wanted Israel to remember this. But it was not just reliving the event but it was to be an act of worship. I think that's probably what's happened poorly um, in, the, in some of the Jewish communities. Is it's just reliving the event. That's not what God intended. He wanted them to remember this, make a memorial so that they would have an act of worship every time they thought of it and not for themselves only, but from generation to generation. This act of the Passover, God's, sparing their lives by the blood of the Lamb was to be remembered for all time. And of course, this is all, as we talked so in-depthly last week, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we, we look back at the great Passover Lamb, the last Lamb, with great aspects of worship, right? And always passing that on to the next generation. Look at verse 15 with me. Seven days you shall eat the unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your house. For whoever eats anything leaven from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Well, the instructions now move from the Passover to what was to be done throughout the following week. For a period of seven days, beginning on the 14th of the month, that was a, a Nisan. Nice Remember we talked about a bid was changed to Nisan. Nice. On that 14th of that month, the feast of unleavened bread was to be held. So there is, this, there is this combining of Passover, lamb slaughtered, eat the lamb. The beginning of unleavened bread starts at that same time on the 14th. Now, seven is an interesting word. We know in biblical narrative it's often a word that means completion. Uh, And so the Israelites were to keep a, a sacred period, a period of seven days in remembrance to God's complete victory, his complete deliverance from slavery. They were to take seven days after celebrating that Passover and remember that God completely destroyed their enemies. He completely took them out of slavery and gave them new life, a new land in him. And so you can see the significance there for Israel and for us as we think back of what God freed us. Completely has freed us from sin. Now, the removal or consumption of yeast in the making of unleavened bread was an important lesson God wanted to teach the nation here. First, it was to be done as a historical remembrance. It was a marker. So each time the feast of unleavened bread came along on the 14th of Nisan, Uh, They were to remember what God did historically. This was a historical, factual event he wanted them to remember. But secondly, and maybe even more importantly, and, and certainly much deeper reasoning, is that unleavened bread was a symbol of breaking away from something. God wanted to mark in their mind that he was going to use leaven or yeast to teach them that he was bringing them out of a sinful situation. Now, baking a bread hasn't changed a whole lot down through time. Leaven was in a bit of the dough and 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 they kept part of that unpacked, unbaked dough from the previous batch and they would share that for the next batch and that would be like a starter and And if you know dough and yeast, it ferments, and and then the process of the next day, you begin to make that batch off of the batch that was made the previous day. Now, when a batch of bread was being baked, just a relatively small quantity of yeast would be added to that each day, and that would help the dough rise, and that's pretty common. There's really not much has changed in making bread through all these centuries. But the instructions were to remove the leaven, to remove the yeast from their house and that they take none of it with them from Egypt. That's the instructions here in verse 15. He wants it gone. And this was a gesture that symbolized they were leaving all of Egyptians' influences, um, their traditions, their sinful way of life was to leave that behind. God did not want them taking any of that with them and corrupting their lives as they move towards the promised land. So in other words, leaven is used throughout the Bible as a picture of sin. It's a picture of sin, and we see it all the way into the New Testament. In fact, Jesus said many a times, places like this in Mark chapter 8, verse 15, he said he was giving orders to his disciples saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus spoke of this type of language all throughout his ministry he's speaking of sin he's speaking of sin that that makes it way into the entire way of life right you can't have a lump of bread and have a little yeast in the corner of the bread right it'll filter it'll ferment all the way through the entire loaf um, when you raise bread it doesn't part of it raise it all raises right because it has yeast in it and so this is something God has used look with me at first corinthians chapter five this is a particular uh very interesting passage of scripture uh it's dealing with some sin that had made its way into the corinth church particularly sin of immorality sin of an immorality with a son-in-law and a a mother-in-law of just the most um horrid immorality uh that you can imagine in the world had made its way into the church Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth that they should not be living this way this is not this is not the blood bought church of the Lord Jesus Christ this is not how they should be handling their affairs but if you notice down in verse chap, uh, chapter 5 verse 6 of 1 Corinthians we begin to see um, him talking about what's going on here he says I've decided to deliver verse 5 such one over to Satan so he's he says, look, there's a, there's a church discipline process that's going on. They've got all the way to the point. Paul says, if you're not gonna handle this, I'll do it myself. We will discipline this person and hand him over to Satan. He's, he's walking along the lines of Matthew 18. But then he turns to verse six. He says, your boasting is not good. And, and boasting in the fact that you allow immorality into your life, knowing that Jesus Christ died for that, Paul says, this is not good, right? Right? And then he says this, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So there's the illustration that we spoke of earlier. This is what God is doing with them. I don't want any leaven. I don't want any influence of Egypt. I want you to bake bread without leaven in it as a mark that we're leaving all this behind. Notice verse 7 clean out the old leaven this is exact instructions that we're going to see that that moses through god through moses gives to the nation of israel to clean up their entire houses make sure there's no leaven within it so paul says the same thing referring to our lives to christians life clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened What, what a statement we are cleansed of our sins so Paul is challenging the church. Why would you want to add sin back into this? And as Christians, we, uh, you hear me use this term quite often. I was raised with this term from my mentor. He'd always challenged me, Scott, have short accounts. You're going to sin, but have short accounts. Deal with sin quickly. Do not let leaven, leaven the whole lump, in other words. Because sin doesn't like to just stay dormant in one part of your life. Oh, if you leave sin there, it's going to make its way through the entire life. It'll ruin your marriage, your parenting, your business. It'll, it'll, it'll destroy all things because that's what sin is about. It's about death and destruction. So Paul warns them that they are to clean out this old lovin' and be a new lump just as, in fact, you are. For Christ, look at this, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Remember I told you the connection between the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover is often connected. And so you can see what he's doing right here. He's connecting this, this tradition that they knew they were to, to have. It was a tradition within the Jews, made its way even into the early church, that that Christ is a Passover lamb. So why would you have leaven? And so there's a challenge here to this church to deal with these and to deal with them in our own lives. Now, turn your, turn, make your way back to Exodus chapter 12 with me. Notice in verse 15 that the result of not dealing with leaven physically in the, the home was that you would be cut off. Now, verse 15 says that whoever eats of any leaven from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, that's a, quite a term, isn't it? um it it, it's it's a penalty imposed for breaking this god god wanted to make something very clear i have rescued you from the sin of egypt from the domain of slavery and, and brought you into freedom do not be a part of this or i'll cut you off now the judgment was not necessarily death in all cases Uh, certainly the the law was clear of immorality there was death for that the um, a child uh, or children not respecting their parents there were certain death penalties for things but in this fact he uses the word a little different there's an expulsion from the people of God now isn't that interesting when we think about church discipline God gives us a loving kind process to deal with sin within the church we, know, we just noted that the Corinth church did not follow that process, so Paul had to come in and bring that process to a head. But God lovingly takes us through it, but if you reject that dear brother or sister who comes to you and says, hey friend, I love um, you, know, I, these things are in your life, you know, will you repent of them? If you reject that, then the Bible says, of course, you know in Matthew 18, you, you take somebody else, and two or three with you, and you plead with that dear friend, that dear soul, to, to turn from sin. And, and if that doesn't, you tell the entire church, because you want to get everybody involved, because this is going to affect the entire church. And then the final process is that person is to be put off. Put out is the word, um, cut off from the people of God. And that's the final step of church discipline, is they're put out of fellowship. You still are evangelizing them. You treat them as someone who is unsaved. But so you can see where God has kept. And Remember, remember, God does not change. Everything's flowing towards the cross where all this is built and fulfilled into. But God hasn't changed. And and he says, if you're going to deal with sin and be called my people, if you're going to take the things of the world, the things of Egypt, and you're going to dabble in those and keep those in your life, you're going to be cut off. And that has still not changed within the church today a brother or sister who claims Christ, who stays in sin, eventually God has a plan to put that person out of fellowship to either prove they're not saved or bring them to discipline and so they will repent and turn back to him. It is, a, it is his gracious way of restoring people uh, to bring them back. But we see this process here even in the Old Testament. Look at verse 16 with me. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly. Assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. So the Hebrew calendar, remember, was uh, based on moons. And so each new moon was the beginning of a new month. And, and these festivals did not necessarily land on the, on the Sabbath, which they were supposed to rest. Um, but you can see here, nevertheless, God wanted that the beginning of this festival, the festival of unloving bread, they were to not work on the first day of it and they were not to work on the seventh day of it no matter where it started. There was a rest here during this feast. It was a holy assembly. And it's holy, think about this, it's holy because God is in it. God is the rescuer, God is the deliverer, God is the one who deals with sin and so it's holy because God's in it. And we, God's people, are holy because He's holy. And he's made us holy here. And so um, remember that as it speaks about this holy uh, community that comes together. When the church comes together, whether corporately like this that we're doing in this uh, extraordinary season, or we're actually here physically, um, we are the holy assembly of God because God is with us. He resides within each one of us as believers, and he dwells among his people. And so he says, look, I want you to keep this sacred. Now look with me at verses 17 through 20. Verses 17 through 20. Let's read. Just read that that section together. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening... You shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leaven, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leaven In all your dwelling you shall eat unleavened bread. Well, notice on this very day, God is very serious about his time frame, isn't he? He is not a God that leaves things to chance or lets it see how it falls. He's ordained all things, including our salvation. Uh, please understand that. Our salvation is not God waiting around for us to choose him. He has all things under control. And so when he says these things, we should, we should mark this in our Bible. On this very day, he has set this as a reminder that he brought the host out of Egypt. And this statement brings the reality that the lord's salvation from the past into the present he's he wants this marked so he doesn't want any generation to forget what he has done I, I love this stuff this is what we do we pass on to our next generation the things god has done verse 18 you see that the same night that the lame lamb was slain they were to start this feast of unleavened bread and they were to continue it for seven days. Verse 19, no leaven should be found in their homes. So there's this, there's this cleaning out. Uh, physically, they cleaned out their homes. They swept them out. They made sure that there was no leaven there. And that's quite a process. Yeast is in the air. Uh, we know that. And, and so anything that would have had yeast in it in any way, food items, anything, had to be cleaned out of there. Verse 20, there was no eating of anything with ye- yeast in it at all. And so... God wanted this done, and he wanted it done regularly. This very day, I want you to do this. This will help you remember what I did. I freed you from slavery. He wants that marked. Now, a good question for us as we wrap up this first point is do we regularly search our lives and seek our lives, look deeply into them to see if there is leaven, if there is sin that is growing in some place, Yeast grows, leaven grows within a batch of dough. It it strengthens, and the longer you let it rise, the bigger it'll get, right? And it affects all of it. And so we should do this. The sweet psalmist of of Israel, King David, wrote, said, Lord, search me and know me. See if there's anything that's godless, that's that's not of you. He, he, He wants this, even his anxious thoughts tried, the Bible says. Try my anxiety. Search me and 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 look for the hurtful things in me, the things that are not of you, and lead me to the way of everlasting. He would say, and so sin will look. Sin will make you not desire the bread of life, and that's the the idea of this point. If they if they just go back, well, you know, hey, that was great. He got us out of that big jam with Egypt, and they just go back to living an everyday life where it was fine to have yeast in the in the bread they would soon forget what God has done. And, and, and friends, I, I, I mean, I, we fall in that category, don't we? When's the last time you thought about the day God saved you? Do, do you mark that day? Or maybe that period of time, some, some of us may not know that exact day, but maybe over a period of time, God opened our mind and, and there was a stretch of time. Do you mark that in your mind? And and what he's doing is he's reminding us to to not forget when he brings us out of slavery. And I, I promise you, if you forget what God has done, sin is crouching. And it's like yeast, it'll invade every aspect of you. And Jesus, uh, oh, he's the bread of life. He's the real unleavened bread, isn't he? He has no sin in him. He's impeccable. He always has been, he always was, and he always will be. I mean, that's our Lord. That's why he could go to the cross for us. And so we won't desire the bread of life. You'll stop desiring Christ. You'll stop desiring the word when sin takes root. And pretty soon it'll work its way into your life. So sin will make you not desire the bread of life. And oh, you'll starve. You'll starve spiritually. So that's what sin will do. You need to be hungry for Christ. And so let's search our lives to see if there's things that need to be removed. What a good um, example that this gives us even in the new covenant. Number two, stand behind the blood and find protection. Stand behind the blood and find protection. Now the narrative turns to the events in, in Egypt as Moses installs these divine requirements for the Passover to the nation. The feast of unleavened bread is not mentioned here because it wasn't part of the uh, occurrence of this day right here. They were to make bread of unleavened and take it with them, but it was to be a feast that was to be celebrated in the future. That's what all that was about in those last few verses. They did not celebrate; they they didn't celebrate the feast of unleavened bread on this very first Passover. But what God did is had them bake bread, had it ready to go, actually had the dough ready to go, we'll see. And so he will provide for them on the trip. But on this first occasion, they actually didn't celebrate this. It's, and remember, it's kind of tied together. Passover and unleavened bread feast are tied together. And so they're, now they're going to take them out. Look with me at verse 21 and, uh, in through 22. 21 through 22. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourself lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin. And apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. So, here we begin to see the dispersion of the instructions. Uh, as we looked at last week, was really what the Passover was going to be about. Instructions were given there, but he was showing that this was what God was going to do, is really God revealing these things to Moses. Now Moses is giving those instructions to the nation. Now, one of the problems is, is you have 600,000 homes. In fact, I think numbers. I mm, can't remember. Somewhere around the te- early teens, we see that they're counted very early on, and they come to about six hundred and three thousand homes. Men who can carry a sword and fight, and so uh, this is not easy. There's <laughs> you're not Instagramming, you're not you know social mediaing this thing out. This is all word of mouth. And um, what's amazing is God had elders that were there helping communicate to smaller groups, helping Moses. Uh, teach these truths out there, and you see that at the beginning of verse twenty one as you follow down in, in verse twenty one we begin to realize that this verse reiterates the the command of obeying the Passover given in the the earlier texts. So select a lamb and slay the lamb, right? Go take, go do it now it 's time. This is the first passover they um, it's, it's, it's somewhere probably around the 10th and, and so now they're to get this done to go get this one select a lamb unblemished male um, and bring it and then all of the instructions put together this lamb is to be slayed um, it's to be bled out. Notice in verse 22 that the blood is to be caught in a basin. And so there's also, in the narrative is not given to us, but they knew how to put a lamb down and they would actually just cut the juggler and let that blade into a, into a basin. Um, and this would go on to be a way they would sacrifice uh, later on. But that blood was captured in a basin and, and, and now that blood is to be taken to the, to the very front of their dwelling place. Uh, that's an important thing. Uh, this is, everything behind this blood is going to be safe. Everything on the other side of that is got death coming. And so this blood was to put on the door. To, oh, notice the hyssop, this bunch of hyssop. These are bulb-like. Um, they collect them and they tie them together and they got little bristles on them and they would use them to scrub wounds and, and paint with them. They, they use these in all kinds of different ways in the ancient world. But they were to take that to mark the the, the lintel, the, the beam across the top and the doorpost with this blood and, and they were to stay behind it. Look at that, it's very clear. Stay behind this blood and stay there till morning. If you come out and you come out from behind that blood and you don't want to stand behind that blood, you will die. And so clear, clear instructions. Hebrews eleven twenty eight 28 Says they did this by faith. He, speaking of Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled in the sprinkling of blood, so that he would um, so that he would destroy the would not destroy the firstborn. Um, so the passage reminds us that, speaking for Moses and for the whole of the nation, that they did that, and God passed over them. Look at verse twenty three with me. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. It is from this action that we get the term Passover, right? When he sees the blood, he will pass over. So remember that what's so important here is it is not just the selection or just the slaughter of the animal that brought protection or even the consumption of the animal. The Israelites, by faith, had to sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost outside their house in order to be exempt from the execution of judgment by this destroyer here. And this this act of faith protected them. They believed God. They believed God. Now, this is some interesting stuff here. The word um, for plague here, we're not sure what actually takes place here. Um, it's not clear how the plague occurred, um, and we're not even clear of the destroyer. Was it one angel that went through there? We know that later on we'll see in the nation of Israel that an angel comes to the rescue um, during the time when the Israel had kings, and, and one angel slays one hundred eighty-five thousand soldiers, Assyrian soldiers. We know he can do it. But what's interesting, I, I read this this week and. and psalm of moses what we often refer to as psalms 78 he writes these words verse 49 he he sent upon his burning anger god's angry at sin and fury and indignation and trouble moses writes in the psalm a band of destroying angels he leveled a path for his anger he did not spare their souls from death but he gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt the first issue of their strength in the tents of ham. Oh, so much there, I, I can't get bogged down here too much, but, but we see first a, a band of destroying angers, carrying out uh, angels, carrying out the anger of God, the righteous anger of God, and, and, he, and he doesn't spare their souls, and that's a very important wording. Oh, we, we don't fear as, as Christians, we don't fear death if God for some reason let us die of this virus or anything else that he has complete control over. We don't really fear that death, do we? We're, we may not look forward to it, but we're not afraid of that. What God saves us from is from the second death. That's where our souls are taken to be with God. That's, that's who we are. That's, that's the salvation of our person. And, and, and so the Bible says he didn't spare their souls to death. So this is not only physical death, but this is spiritual death to these and, and he gave them over to the plague. And so we're not sure how he did that. Did he just slay them? Did um, what, what came upon them? There's actually many theologians who believe that there was some kind of virus that hit the firstborn of the humans and the beast. And then the last phrase, and we could spend a lot of time on this, but I won't. It says, the first issue of their strength in the tents of Ham. Well, you know where Egypt came from. They came from Ham. And you remember that Ham laughed at his father the nakedness of his father Noah and there was condemned and many of these tribes and peoples that come against Israel all part of that they come from that and God didn't forget that and and so here he's dealing with it but throughout the Bible God uses angels to minister judgment we see him do that but in this case the narrative doesn't tell us the means that God used and it could have been some kind of virus whatever he's done clearly he he can bring hail and turn water into blood he can he certainly can uh to bring death the way he desired look at verses 24 through 27 with me and you shall observe this event as an ordination uh or ordinance for you and your children forever and when you enter the land which the lord will give you as he has promised you shall observe this right and when your children say to you what does this right mean to you You shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. Now again, this is a precious passage of scripture and I'm trying to move quickly, but just a couple of thoughts. Again, there's a reminder to observe forever the Passover. And I think the same is true with us as New Testament, New Covenant Christians. We forever Celebrate the, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as we are doing this week. And it is not just a once-a-week thing to us or a once-a-year thing to us. It is every day we celebrate that Christ died for our sins and, and then beat death, sin, and Satan at the resurrection. But it's meant to do that. Verse 25 is telling us that they were not to forget this when they went into the land of plenty. Remember, God's taking them from slavery uh, to, to building the, the empire of, of Egypt and dying underneath the hand of the slave owner to now to a land once they get there after they go through their own share of disobedience but to a land flowing with milk and honey lush and full and, and he, he will tell them when you get into houses that you did not buy and you, and you have the produce from vineyards and plants and trees that you did not plant you remember who gave this to you. And so uh, there's again this doctrine of remembrance he says I don't want you to forget this. And then notice in verse 26 and 27 this truth was to be passed from generation to generation. Oh, if you don't teach the great things of Christ, uh, they die out. Uh, we've heard of Christian families that had a heritage in the past but somewhere along the line moms and dads fell apart they did not live for Christ and the next generation did not get these truths packed in they didn't take their children to church they didn't put them under the teaching of god's word and sooner or later that that passes out and and pretty soon you have a loss of, of those things and and he, god says i want this taught generation to generation notice they bowed down and worship that's exactly what god was after when you study these truths of god is that the fact that we come to him and we worship him look at verse 28 that's hey one other thought there parent moms and dads anytime you see a cross or you, or you see anything that maybe uh, gives you an opportunity to have a conversation with your children that's the idea here so you could see it in the Old Testament little Hebrew boys or little Hebrew girls are saying you know why are we doing this unleavened thing daddy I don't understand opportunity Lord, why, you know, Daddy, Mom, why is there a cross over there? What's that cross mean? Why are there crosses at cemeteries? Why do we sing about the cross and teach about it? Great opportunities to teach them this so they'll be worshipers of the Lord. Verse 28. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Uh, very little is reported in the narrative of Israel's response since the last time they responded poorly. In chapter 6, verse 12, remember they did not want to listen to Moses anymore. They, Moses had come and started the process, and of course, Pharaoh mocked him and made more difficult life for, for Israel. But nowhere any since since the plagues have started have we seen them resist God. They have been obeying him all along. And verse 27 says they bowed down and worshiped God at this. In verse 28, they immediately obey. So they hear the truth, they worship at God, and then they obey. And that's what worship should do. When we worship the God, we should get up off of our knees or, or leave the church or leave a Bible study or time in quiet. And it should, it should push us to obedience. I hope that does that for you and for I. And it, it's clear that this obedience was observed throughout the nation, um, this obedience of the Passover, because none of the Israelites died. Not one. The Bible will tell us in chapter 13 not one of them died. They all obeyed God. So Israel stood behind this atoning work of the blood of the Lamb, and they found protection. Just like we stand behind the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to get to the Father. We stand behind that. All other ways lead to death. You don't stand behind Christ and his atoning work, you're going to die. There's just no other way. And and Christians don't have a plan B, C, or anything else. We have plan A, stand behind the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have nothing else because that is the perfect work of Christ. Why will we look for something else? We do not add to that. Third thought, the wages of sin and the smell of death. The wages of sin and the smell of death. Um, At this point, the narrative omits the details of the preparation of the Passover. The text dramatically moves forward to midnight on the 14th of that day and 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 there's in this text here as we read it there's a bluntness there's a lack of sensationalism here um, in this account and I believe I believe that way because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked Uh, there is no dancing on the grave of your enemy in this text at all it's in fact it's fairly sobering look at verse 29 with me Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn cattle. Now what is recorded follows exactly what God predicted. Death. Reject my word, you die. And that's exactly what happened. The only difference in this text compared to chapter 11 verse 5 is he swaps out the slave girl behind the millstone with the captive in the dungeon, his firstborn. And I think what's amazing is God's judgment fell from Pharaoh's house to the firstborn of the captive. It actually gets worse. (laughs) It's farther down the scale. The, The slave girl behind the millstone, at least she works for somebody and she has a job. This is the captive in the dungeon. His firstborn is slayed. Boy, God comes after all. No matter if you have great wealth and great honor by people, or you're forgotten in a dungeon. If you don't know Christ, you will die. And so this verse is, is again very blunt. And in, in it lacks sensationalism in the fact that there's, there's no joy in this. This is what happens. And doubtlessly, but though unrecorded, the massive penalty of the tenth plague would have been communicate it to the Egyptians. I, I don't doubt that they had known about this. People will say, well, Pastor, I don't see where they got warned in this. Well, first of all, surely the Egyptians were monitoring every movement of, of Israel. They were their prisoners. They were their captives. They knew exactly what they were doing. They would have seen them select a lamb. They would have seen them slaughter a lamb. They would have seen the families gather to eat the lamb and feast on the lamb. And they certainly could not have missed 600,000 homes with blood marked on them. So they knew of these things. And, and this was overwhelming but they continued. They co- continued to cling to their, their pharaoh, uh, the gods of Egypt, to their traditions. And the result was they died in their sins. Because they heard the message and rejected it. Now, I think the shame is true today. I think there's people who watch Christians and they see our walks and they see us serve the Lord. Some may even come and experience our worship with us and and see that these people here at Riverbend just love the Lord and they sing and preach and they they care for each other and again, we 're not a perfect church, but we're 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 trying to love the Lord and let an outflow of our heart come and and but in the end, people could witness all this. you could have family members. We, we spoke about this this week. Um, some of us have family members who have seen our homes, have been with us, have known us for many years, have heard the gospel countless times, and yet in the end, they cling to their own gods, themselves, or something they want, and they don't bend the knee, and their deprived minds lead them away from the truth. And it's heartbreaking, but but we can see it, and, and I see this in Egypt. They, I mean, I think someone on the six o'clock news had to say 600,000 homes have blood painted on them. We've already had nine plagues that have destroyed our our nation. And yet depravity doesn't make sense. It keeps you locked away from God's truth. So I think they knew. Look at verse 30 with me as we press on. Pharaoh rose in the night. This is, man, can you imagine the scene? He and all his servants and all of the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no one, no one, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. I mean, this is an expression of, of death with no hope, great cries. We've all been to unsaved funerals, haven't we? They're very different than a Christian funeral where we believe that person knew Christ and was with them. I've had really the displeasure of doing several of those through the years and the wailing that goes on. There's no hope. They'll never see that person, particularly someone who was killed premature than what they thought they should be, and or died young or whatever. Uh no hope. And you could imagine this that this death rang out through this nation. The cries went up. These are not cries to God, these are cries of anguish, cries of suffering. Um, because of sin. Chapter 13 tells us that it was the males. The Lord struck all the males, the firstborn. Again, very much tied to the nation of Israel and eventually fulfilled in his son. Look at verse 31 and 32 with me. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up. This is Pharaoh calling. Rise up, get out from among my people. Both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. Wow, what a statement. The impact was so great, the panic so widespread, that Pharaoh, in the middle of the night, calls for Moses to come. And Pharaoh had told Moses, remember, I never want to see you again, so I don't know if he broke that or he just spoke through his officials But what he spoke was complete defeat. I give up. Go. Notice the imperatives. Rise up. Get out. Go. These are strong terms. This is a a mission of defeat in so many ways. And yet we'll see him harden his heart later. Notice for the first time also it seems that Pharaoh is identifying with his people. He's been above the suffering before as we study the plagues. He, yes, he prays and Moses does things for him and so forth, and the plagues stop, but always he seemed kind of above the people. But this time, this time he's suffering with, with the most wealthy and the poorest. He's suffering, and he calls them my people. I'm now suffering with my people. And Pharaoh now agrees to every term God set before him. Every term in verse 32 Take them all. Take the animals, the people, the kids. Take it all. Go worship your God. But notice there at the end of verse 32, he adds one more element as he's surrendering here. Uh, Not in a salvific way, but he's surrendering to God. He says, and bless me also. Well, I think Pharaoh in the past had prayed. It has Moses to pray for him to stop the pain that the nation was going through. But, But the Lord But the Lord now has proved his power in a devastating way to Pharaoh in Egypt here. And it seems Pharaoh wants this to go away, but he wants something more from this. He's finally realizing the destruction. He's finally realizing what has happened. He he wants the blessing of this nation removed from him that's a curse to him now. But he's asking for something more. Could he he be possibly asking for Moses to ask God to raise his son from the dead? Uh, I don't know. Because you know what the narrative says? Nothing. Nothing. There's no response recorded. Moses does not respond to him. God does not respond to him. It's too late. It's too late. Death has come. And it's irreversible. And it's sobering when I read that. Oh, bless me. Bless me also. He's still stuck in his selfishness. He's still wanting everything his way in in a sense. He's relinquished all that God has asked, but I need help. It it reminded me of the rich man in Lazarus. The rich man goes to to Hades and awaits judgment there, and he's just tortured there. He's longing for a dip on the tongue, and I I think there's a response there. Once death comes, there is no turning back. However, it is not just Pharaoh now that's desiring the curse of the people of Israel to be gone. The whole nation is wanting them removed, wanting them sent. They're begging to send this nation out. Notice in verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said, we will all be dead. The economic benefits of of exploiting this nation are, now do not weigh to to what has come. There is no justification for the judgment they're going under. They no longer want them. And in the minds of these people, the minds of the Egyptians, they believed if Israel stays, we die. We die. And so they want them gone. God's people should, should at some level, and I go back, this is where I started the, tonight. God's people at some level should spell trouble for those who continue to to reject God's word. They should be frustrated at some level. And that doesn't mean we try to do that. We should be loving and kind. We should speak the truth and love. But if we are speaking the truth and we're obeying God and we're standing for what God says in a humble but yet confident in the Lord, um, we should have people that don't like us. Uh, I, I struggle when I see churches and individuals that the world has no problem with them. Tells me they're not preaching a message. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. Let me just read these quickly as you know this. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. What a great word. Same thing, brings us out in this victory in Christ and manifests us through a sweet aroma of the, of the knowledge of him in every place. So we bring this sweet aroma of Christ everywhere we go. Very similar to what we're seeing in Exodus. For we are the fragrant of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one an aroma from death to death, from the other aroma to life to life. And who is adequate for these things is a question mark. We're we're not adequate on our own. It's Christ in us they're smelling. (laughs) They're hearing that. They're smelling that. They're sensing him. And then it says this, For we are not like many peddling the word of God, uh, many peddle the word of God And they, they seem to be friends with the world We're not friends with the world We're trying to reach the world with Christ We're trying to give them the message So they don't die eternally We know it is God who has to save them But we are not peddling We're not being friends with the world In fact But as from sincerity we speak The Bible goes on to say But as, but as from God we speak in Christ In the sight of God And so we at times Friends I want you to get this our message does not comply with the world. It is, it is narrow. It is direct. It is one way. There is no other way to the Father. And So when we preach that message with humility and but boldness, we should rub people along. We are not to be friends with the world. Jesus himself said those who are friends with the world are not friends of mine. We have a message for the world. Paul Washer said this recently. He said it is not unloving to tell men that they are sinners but it is, gro- it is the grossest form of immorality to not tell them they're sinners and so we must speak of sin we must tell them sin kills it destroys and separates us do we have the smell of Christ on us friends do we smell like Christ do, is there aroma coming from us or do we have the stench of the world on us well, we should be different Four, and we 'll move very quickly here, leave the world behind and take only what God gives you. Look at verses thirty four and following. So the people took their dough before it was leavened and, and with their kneading bowls bound up in the claws uh, on their shoulders. so you can kind of see it. they grab this bowl with this unleavened bread and they cover it with claws and they and they go. I mean it is morning everybody's dead, all these people are dead in Egypt and they're getting out, right? And so with that unloving bread that would later mark the center of a feast now becomes a source of food for them as they begin to travel. Notice verse 35 and 36. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses for they had requested from the Egyptian articles of silver and gold and clothing and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they, left, went, uh, so that they let them have their requests. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so they obeyed God and, and there's blessing there and there's, there's obedience and there's favor and, and those who clung on to worldly goods, in the end they lost all their worldly goods. Jesus talks about he takes from the, the unfaithful servant and he gives to the faithful one. And this isn't prosperity gospel, but we're, many of us won't have a lot of money on this life, but oh, do the riches of Christ wait for us in heaven. And this is what God does. Look at 38 and 37, uh, 37 and 38. Now the sons of Israel journeyed to Ramses from Sokoth, about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds and, and a very large number of livestock. And so they, this is roughly, most theologians, it's hard to see where all these cities were exactly. Um, I, think, I think actually Moses later writing has a better idea of this because um, Socloth wasn't probably developed like it is when Moses writes this but basically we think they traveled somewhere around 15 miles that first day um, and you're talking at least 2 million um, people estimate more than that 2 to 3 million people if they had one child it's a million point eight and, and you get beyond that got, the numbers rise very quickly it looks like other slaves might have went with them too. It says a mixed multitude went up. Um, maybe some other slaves from other countries said, well, now's the time to get out of here. In fact, I'm going with that god. Uh, I think Egyptians went with them as well. And we see some of the ramifications when they worship the golden bull calf, an Egyptian god, at the, at the foot of Sinai. That's the effects of Egypt on them. So, so doubtlessly the Egyptians who witnessed the powers of God got out of it. But they took their herds. Can you imagine this group? I wrote in my notes, even a blind man could follow this trail. You've you got two million people and all your herds with you um, moving. It wouldn't have been hard to see which direction that they, that they went in. Um, verse 39, and they baked the dough that they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. What well, Succoth there, they most likely used that dough and took it and made these unleavened cakes there, and God had given that for a provision for them, so they had something to eat in this first day. And, and they plundered Egypt on their way out, but they had no provisions, the Bible says. And clearly, God's going to test them. You're going to trust me. Well, we know that Israel suffers with a lack of short term memory right it doesn't take them long they get on the other side even before they actually get across the red sea where it's split they begin to complain they get on the other side they begin to complain and they complain and complain and god counts that and eventually in numbers he says 10 times you have complained against me Um, And so they forget these things. But here's God taking care of them. And they have food in their belly the first night. Look at verses 40 and 41. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. The language is clear. They were in Egypt for 430 years. And that's Jacob. That's Jacob and his sons to the Exodus. Uh, many historians have looked at this and tried to figure out the different pharaohs that came along. The Bible says eventually a pharaoh that did not know Joseph doesn't necessarily mean he, um, the pharaoh when Joseph died didn't know. Many of them think it was at least 215 plus years of slavery. 215 hundred years of slavery that they were under at least. Last thought here as we get ready to close. I'm, I'm way out of time here. But number five, teach yourself to remember the great works of God. And, and I'd like you to do this on your own, because I want to be in chapter 13 next week. But just here he goes back to the ordinances of the Passover. And you'll see that in this, he wants them to remember. And, and so I wrote in the notes here, teach yourself to remember the great works of God. Teach yourself to remember them. And, and you'll see that anybody that's with them, they, they need to be circumcised, they need to be Clean. He's setting people apart that follow God. And, and there's a reminder of it to go down through here. And he reminds them, don't break the bones of the lamb. And, and of course, what a connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. When they came to break his legs, he was already dead and they pierced him with a spear instead. And you'll see that all as it goes down here. But there's no one that's to partake of this who's not set apart. And so when we think about the Passover, Jesus Christ being our Passover lamb. It is those who have been set apart for the Lord Jesus Christ who worship him at Easter. That's who celebrates him. That who um, those who come and just fulfill their religious duties, they're not gonna understand. They're not gonna we'll sing and preach this Sunday, but a lot of them aren't gonna understand it. They're just there to check a box. But we're worshipers. We know God set us apart. He he elected us to our salvation. He chose us from the foundations of the world. And he says, You're mine. And you will be mine and you will set yourself apart. And we start to deal with sin and we start to get that leaven out of our life. And and we we let the worship of the Lord drive that desire to get sin out of our life. And yet we may be a thorn and a smell that is rancid to the world. We are a sweet, sweet smell to the Lord. And I know we're going to have a unique service on Sunday, but I pray that you sing in your cars or in the back of your pickups or whatever you're going to do and, and you worship the Lord because you know God raised him from the dead and he beat sin, Satan, and death and we are free. The chains are off. We are no longer slaves. And I trust that you'll have a great Sunday with us as we worship in our unique drive-in church. We love you and we miss you. And let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time. May you be blessed by all that we've said and done here today, Lord. Help us be set apart for you. Thank you that you are Passover lamb, Lord Jesus. And we stand behind your blood, and we are safe there. May you be blessed and worshiped by what we've done tonight, Lord. Encourage our church, Lord. We look forward to gathering in our unique ways this weekend. May that bring you glory as well, Lord. Stir our hearts this week, in Jesus' name, amen. Good night.